0: There's one thing I've learned about Christian parents and youth workers over the years. It's that they want the best for their kids. One area where many of us have struggled to teach God's best is the area of God's grand and glorious gift of sex and sexuality. That struggle has played out in the church in a variety of ways, including the fact that for our evangelical teens and young adults, sex outside of marriage has become increasingly morally acceptable. What is the extent of premarital sexual activity among our unmarried young people in the church? And how can we respond to these current trends in ways that effectively teach kids to both glorify God and experience sexual flourishing? We'll tackle these and other matters as we chat with sociologist and researcher, Dr. David Ayers, on this episode of Youth Culture Matters.
1: From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together, we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults.
0: So, Jason, one of the things that uh, I think you may know about me, I'm not sure many people do know this, but when I was in college, I was a sociology major. Were were you aware of that?
1: I was not. Okay,
0: yeah. Sociology and then a minor in anthropology, and I just loved all the social sciences. It was rather fascinating. So, whenever I get a chance to interact with and talk with someone who's a sociologist, it it just lights me up. I'm actually reading a book right now called, it just came out, called Gods of the Upper Air, which is about how uh, a group of, the subtitle is a group of renegade sociologists and anthropologists rewrote all the, uh, the narrative in our culture on uh, race, sexuality, and gender. And it's a fascinating uh, book written from a perspective wow. that I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, but it's a little bit of history. So when I get a chance to interact with people in the social sciences, it's very helpful, and especially for those mm-hmm. of us who do
1: ministry. So did you take a sociology class, or have you oh, done yeah. any of that? Oh, yeah. I had considered being a sociology major, but okay. it, it just didn't end up being the thing that I did, but yeah. yeah. What was I, but I had no idea that you would become a, a yeah. sociologist. Well, I'm not a sociologist. Gr- I'm a sociology years. major, yeah. What was your major? <laughs> People, I'm sure. I double majored. It, 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 I'm not doing anything close to it. I business management and communication. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, you so. well,
0: you're, we're communicating right now, and we're going to yeah. communicate and have a great conversation with someone who actually is a sociologist. Uh, yes. Doctor David Ayers is at Grove City College, where our good buddy Duffy Robbins is, and David is one who's done a lot of research on marriage. He's actually uh, not only a professor of sociology there but he's the interim provost and vice president for academic affairs. And for those not familiar with Grove City College, it's in Grove City, Pennsylvania, an absolutely stunningly beautiful campus and some incredible faculty there. We have a lot of students uh, from our church who graduate from high school and, and head out to Grove City. He's written a book. It's his latest book, Christian Marriage, a comprehensive introduction. That came out in February of this year, and he's taught on marriage and family for well over 30 years. So David, welcome.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on, I really appreciate it. So what we
0: want to talk about today is some research that you've done, and there's a brief that's come out from the Institute for Family Studies, which you can tell us more about here, on current practices of evangelical teens and young adults. And certainly that's something that we're concerned about much of the conversation right now in our youth ministry world and certainly what Jason and I are dealing with through our sexual integrity initiative and what Jason's doing at uh, Project 619 out there on the West Coast, it's dealing with matters of sexuality. And it's not just behaviors. I know a lot of what you've done in this research is about behaviors, but we want to talk as well about beliefs. And before we jump into that, I just want to share something that I found on the Grove City website, a little bit of an interview with you. There was a question that was asked of you where they asked, you know, what is the most important piece of advice you can give students to help them succeed? I love your answer here. And I want you to talk about this because this is, this is really the foundation of what we're going to discuss today. But you say the chief issue for social scientists is not what is fashionable or what is politically correct or what are people willing to accept the chief issue is what is true. Finding out what is true is hard work and often leads to taking unpopular stands and facing social pressure. And certainly that's the case for the topic we're going to deal with today. Talk a little bit about that foundational way in which you approach, you know, the discipline of sociology. And and I think we should approach all of life.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things that's bothered me um, as I've watched the social sciences unfold and Uh, Even my own discipline of sociology over the last few decades is the degree to which, you know, it's almost like, yeah, we're into sociology, but we're not into understanding society and how things really are. And sociology, that would be like I'm into cardiology, but I'm not into figuring out the human heart and how to fix it. Sociology is a tool to do what should really be our passion. Our passion is to understand social structures, social processes, social realities, uh, regardless of what what that is, and communicate that as accurately as possible. You know, we it is really hard work. We we have to confront our own sinfulness. We have to confront our own biases. We have to confront the fact that we're extremely limited human beings, which means that we have to be pretty humble, you know? We have to put our best stuff in front of other people and let them tell us what they really think, point out the flaws, you know, uh, work it through. And, you know, the best sociologists do that. And, and, you know, interesting thing is that some of them, I get some really great stuff from Brad Wilcox, who's a Catholic conservative at University of Virginia, but I also get some great stuff from a friend of his, Nicholas Wolfinger, who's just a dead honest liberal. And when, when he sits down to look at data, he he takes off his liberal hat, and he, he does his honesty hat. And in that sense, sociology at its best is like journalism at its best. It's, it's really, really difficult to find out what the truth is, because not only are humans dodgy creatures, you know, really difficult to understand, uh, they know when they're being studied, they alter their behavior when they're being studied. You know, finding out what's really going on is hard, but it's also difficult because we're sinful creatures, who even if we were sinless, we would still be terribly limited in our comprehensive understanding of the totality of reality. So the um, if we accept the fact that it's going to be really hard work, and at the end of the day, lots of people might not like what our hard work has produced, and we're willing to live with those consequences and deal with it in an irenic, winsome way, but at the same time, not, not in a cowardly way, I, I, I think Uh, we can really be successful. And I think ultimately that's what people want. And if we find ourselves working with or working for people that don't want that and we can't change their mind, then I I think it's time to work with somebody else. In other words, ultimately, uh, we want to serve folks who are willing, maybe not to agree with everything that we say, but are willing to accept our best understanding of what the truth is and at least allow us to express that.
0: Before we jump into your research and what you've learned about uh, current sexual practices of evangelical teens and young adults, just a couple of questions. I I think they're related. Let's see if they're related. One would be, how has your faith or how should our faith inform our engagement with sociology? As a sociologist, how has your faith informed that? What makes Mm -hmm. you different as a sociologist? And then uh, a follow-up question to that would be: for those who are listening, we have youth workers and parents who, I would love for them to be engaged with sociology because it's so rich and so helpful. The social sciences are, but how? You know, what what are the benefits to them? What, you know, how would you push on them uh, to engage more with the social sciences? Because we think, you know, hey, I'm in youth ministry. I I'm not necessarily sure I need to do that. There's other things I need to. To spend my time on so there's a couple couple of questions there I mixed together
2: well you know if, if you're really into bird watching then to a certain extent you probably are going to need to be into optics a bit now op- op- optical devices may not be your thing but optical devices enable you to see what it is that you are interested in and to the extent if if you want to work with youth and parents and, and youth pastors and so forth then you want to help them to see. You want them to see accurately the things that they are trying to do in light of what they accomplish. And so that also includes that you want to help them see to what extent what they're doing is achieving the results that they hope to achieve. Uh, And uh, recognizing that hopefully they're similar to you and that they realize that they're fallen they realize that everything that they do isn't perfect, that they are always going to get better by the feedback of people uh, other than themselves on, on what they're doing. And, and th- that multiple perspective uh, is going to be very helpful to them. So I don't really ask youth ministers to be interested in sociology, but I would ask them to be interested in is what sociology helps them to see, that that that, that, that they're not going to see through some other lens. And... Um, that particularly if they've got a sociologist who loves the Lord and really cares deeply about and respects the word of God um, and has a biblical anthropology, a, a balanced understanding of the human person, um, which is not just that we're fallen, but that we're also we're made glorious, and that, that glory has never been eliminated by the fall. It's been tarnished by it. Uh, Francis Schaefer talked about the glory and the ruin of man Um, Every day I'm dealing with people who are infinitely valuable and capable of amazing things, amazing good, but they're dogged by sin. They're dogged by their limitations, just like I am. And so in that sense, if they have a sociologist who's going to approach things that way, they should really value that. Because, of course, sociology has become notoriously politically correct and left wing but there's so many sociologists out there, Christian and not Christians, who still take their work very seriously. Just like there's a lot of journalists out there right now, who still take their work very seriously and, and don't view it as just an ideological uh, harangue or polemic, but really want to understand and help other people understand reality. Mm.
1: David, I'm uh, I, I, I'm going back to the comment that Walt made that it was on the website, and I'm curious if you would be able to enlighten us, maybe some of the surprises that you've seen in sociology. Um, Because one of the comments that you had made about uh, the friend of your uh, Catholic sociologist uh, puts down the liberal hat. Um, And we talked just recently a little bit about political correctness. I'm, I'm just curious if there are any studies or any sort of movement within sociology that you've seen that have surprised you most. Um, in the midst of that uh, with regards to not necessarily going where the data would lead or saying something that is politically correct but may not be correct based upon data that's collected?
2: Well, one of the things that shocks the daylights out of me is that uh, we have as much evidence about the harm associated with Things like having children out of wedlock, having sex out of wedlock, uh, rampant divorce rates. I mean, we, we have, we have, we all understand that correlation is not cause, but we've broken this down in so many different ways that a causal relationship is no longer a reasonable question. We, we have as much evidence about the destructive nature of these things. And at, at the same sense, the empowering positive nature, for example, of good marriages. That it exceeds what we know about, about, about tobacco use. We're more certain about the destruction caused by the abandonment of marriage and the insistence on sex and children outside of marriage. We're, we're more certain of that than, at least if we were to be statistically honest, than we are that smoking causes cancer. And yet, nobody really questions that smoking causes cancer, nor do we worry about the self esteem of smokers when we point that out. And yet we, we are paralyzed uh, when it comes to speaking out um, on that. And, um, and then sometimes when we do, we do it in bad ways. We do it in ways that are judgmental, narrow, bible maying haranguing, you know, that kind of thing. But nevertheless, it, it just blows my mind because um, you would think that the over, over— and guys like Nicholas Wolfinger are, are an exception to that. But you would think that that much overwhelming data would be enough to convince people to say, I'm not a Christian, I don't really believe in this stuff, I don't care if you live out of wedlock, I don't care what you do, but the fact is, is that here are the consequences of it, you know, It'd be like, if you, if, you want, if you like driving fast cars and you don't like wearing a seatbelt, go ahead and do it. Even admit to everybody that that's how you feel, but don't tell people it's not dangerous. Um, th- that just doesn't make any sense. And, and that, that's what I've seen and, and what really bothers me. And, and that's just over the years redoubled my emphasis on let's just try to seek the truth about the things that God has called us to study as best as we know how. And, and let's set aside fashion. Let's set aside um, people's feelings, you know, except in as much as Christians, we want to really honor and respect people in the way we talk about things. Um, and um, so that, that's been a surprise to me. Um, I, I think a lot of academics go to graduate school assuming that everybody there is just rolling up their sleeves in a disinterested tr- search for truth and find out the hard way that, you know, that's not necessarily the case. Mm.
0: You, you have been teaching for a while. This is fascinating. And I, I do. I mean, we've got to get into the, you know, the crux of what you have done here with this research. And we will get to that uh, most likely after a break now. But one question before we do that. You've been teaching students for a long time. I mean, you and and I. Sometimes I think the long view is really helpful, especially as a social scientist. I'm sure you are just sort of anecdotally seeing uh, data doesn't support the changes in the student body and their response to to what you're teaching, yep. and and not just at Grove City, but I'm just saying in general, what is. This kind of approach that you're talking about here, which I think is proper and is the one you've taken, it's obvious from the things you've written and from what I've heard you say before, what has been the response from emerging generations now? Have you seen a shift in in how they're responding to what you're putting forth, Maybe maybe more pushback, less pushback? What exactly has been the response among the younger generations as time has passed?
2: More pushback um and um, among people that you would think that, that would think of themselves and you would think of them as more conservative in their theology and their approach who still maybe love free market economics but they're not really comfortable talking about LGBT stuff they're not really comfortable about talking about living out a wedlock or the repercussions funny thing is now they are comfortable about talking about the repercussions of divorce because so many of them have lived through it or watched their friends live through it that they're that it's it's that's that's been a helpful thing to me. My concern is more what they do about it. Namely, they opt out of marriage and live together because of their concerns about the impact of divorce. But but you can't lie to an 18-year-old and tell them that you know divorce doesn't hurt kids. They they know it does. They watched it happen. It happened to them. So there's there's th- th- it's a mixed bag. The other thing is that they're more quick to move towards questioning your motives if they don't like what you're having to say. In other words, it doesn't seem that I can, I can act out of, and I think I really do, I, that I can act out of an honest, deep concern and love for a transgender person or a gay person or somebody who's struggling with pornography. You know, I, I have to somehow, if I, if I question this, and if I question the status quo or the politically correct line, it must be I'm a homophobe, a transphobe, uh, a bigot, Um, you know, and, and in that sense, then the the conversation shuts down and I'd have to say that those are habits they've picked up from the larger world around them. And obviously social media hasn't helped us, has it? I mean, Twitter, I, I have some great interactions with people on Twitter, but to have them, I have to avoid people who seem to build up followers by saying outrageous, nasty things about other people and can't have a reasonable conversation with somebody they disagree with about anything. They're carrying over those habits into the classroom. I think most of the students still really want to have an honest dialogue about that. But um, a a, a friend of mine, a philosopher at another Christian college indicated, he said, you know, a small conservative college, my suspicion is that it was his. Fifty percent of the students there now have no problem with gay marriage or homosexuality. That's consistent with the data that I see. Now, that's the other thing is it's not everybody else. It's you. It, it, it's it's not them. It's us. It's here. It's now. This is where we're at. Now, I can hate them for that or I can engage them in a constructive way. It's just harder to engage that constructively. Yeah. To
0: yeah. Evolve so
2: quickly.
0: Youth workers, you need to listen to this because the, the important uh, there's two two strains coming through here that I'm hearing. One is, you know, our theology. What is it that we're going to teach? And then Jason, we talk about this a lot. The second one is our posture. How do we do that? And so there's some some great insights here that we need to uh, think about and chew on and digest a bit. We're going to take a break. We'll come back, and I want to jump into the data, uh, what you've learned. So stick with us. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, We've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our sexual integrity initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com.
1: Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're going to dive into some of the data that you've put together specifically through the current sexual practices of evangelical teens and young adults. Uh, before we dive into specifics, could you just give us a broad stroke, like a, an overview of what the study involved, what it was, and then we can dive into more of the specifics?
2: Well, what, I've, what I did and what I've kind of done for years is, um, in addition to looking at social science research that's being published through various channels um, and trying to look at the good stuff, I, I've tried to track and, and key into large national data sets that are put together by top top drawer kind of objective organizations. And the two that are really helpful, one is the general social survey that's been done since about 1972 uh, through by the National Opinion Research Corporation through the University of Chicago, which gives us a lot of long-term trend data, um, but it tends to be smaller. And then one that's really gold but, but can be extremely provocative when you get into the details of it, is the National Survey for Family Growth, which since about the mid-1990s has included a separate survey of men, women, and then a pregnancy survey of women. Gets into huge numbers of people, uh, be, between four and 5,000 people in each survey, um, and is, is done in cycles. Both of these surveys are done through household interview types of uh, approaches, um, and in which they, they they really, really good at asking sensitive questions. And so these are trained interviewers. They follow up on things. There's not a lot of concern that the respondent has misunderstood a question or is answering a different question than what was meant, both because they've been standardized so well, but because you have a trained interviewer there that's really their job is to ferret that out and to, and to get things down right. And the National Survey of Family Growth is put out by the Center for Disease Control. And what I do with those surveys is I download them, I, I put them in SPSS, and I, and I just work with them uh, very carefully and um, try to pull out of that, you know, what I can find out about these things. And um, the national, both of those surveys distinguish evangelicals from everybody else. The general social survey even gets into questions like, what is your view of the Bible? Um, so I can look separately at people who say they believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God without error in its original writings. I can look at people who say they've been born again. Um, there, in National Survey for Family Growth, there are several different ways to look at evangelicals. Do they call themselves an evangelical, a fundamentalist, a charismatic, or born again? Or are they members of a church that's known for being an evangelical Protestant denomination? So for example, Southern ba- are they Southern Baptists? Are they PCA? Are they, you know, uh, North American Anglicans, that kind of thing. So it enables you to look at things in a lot of different ways.
1: Well, then then can we dive in a little bit to some of the specifics? Because um, what we have here, uh, maybe just highlight some of the very specifics that you found within the study. Because I, I really appreciated how it was laid out. But there are some specifics just around... Uh, uh, what we're finding about premarital sexual activity and uh, how that was broken down. So, could you get into some of that as well?
0: Yeah, and I, I would just well, add to that that as we listen to this, let's let's remember this. We're getting insight. This this is our kids, or these are our kids. You know, th- this is the reality for our kids yeah. right now. So,
2: yeah, the, the, this is our kids. First of all, the overwhelming majority of self-identified evangelical Protestant kids, no matter how you measure that. Are having sex by the time they're in their, uh, by the time they're 18 to 22 years old. Even by the way, if you set aside petting, which which is not measured separately, and you just look at, and I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to try to be too provocative here, but if you look at intercourse, oral, and anal sex, they are having sex by the time they're 18 or 22. Once they start, the number that go on to become heavily promiscuous is quite high in the 40% range of people in 18 to 22 years of age, if they become sexually active. That's not overall, but among those who've become sexually active are getting up into three, four partners or more. And w- one of the disturbing things is that we we also know that they're engaging in practices based on mis- misperceptions about the nature of the practice. So, for example, again, I don't want to be too provocative. But I know from interacting with students that, for example, they think that uh, something like oral stimulation is safe. Now, they know they're not going to get pregnant from it, but but they think that they're not going to get a sexually transmitted disease from it. They're, they're absolutely wrong. Uh, they're as wrong as wrong can be. And then there are, there are practices that they have no idea how dangerous they are, like anal sex, uh, which literally one out of five evangelical girls between the ages of 22 18 and 22, have allowed that to be done to them, look, that is a extremely dangerous activity. Um, and I'm not saying that to be insensitive to gays or anybody else, I'm just telling you from a biological standpoint, it's a very dangerous activity. Um, and what they also don't realize is that the effect on their future marriage is profound. One of the best predictors of future divorce is multiple sex partners prior to marriage. I mean, it's, it's just a reality. Um, and they don't really see the connection to that. And um, so with that behavior, of course, their opinions are overwhelmingly uh, supportive of premarital sex. And what I like to say about, about the increasing liberal views on homosexuality in the church is that, in a sense, they're just being honest and consistent. And I, I think to a certain extent we need to acknowledge that. Uh, I looked at some statistics just yesterday that showed that as late as the early 2000s, the overwhelming majority of evangelicals who claimed that premarital sex that was not wrong at all. The answer they gave on the survey is, it is not wrong at all. The overwhelming majority of those people said that homosexuality was absolutely wrong, completely wrong. Now, how do you, on the one hand, and this among people who claim to believe the Bible is an errant word God. So, how on the one hand do you say that premarital sex is, is perfectly fine? and homosexuality is reprehensibly horrible. Um, that's not a biblical view, that's a prejudice view. That That's a view based on emotion, visceral. It's not a thoughtful view. Um, I, I would like to think that I can approach a gay person or a sexually active single Christian both from the standpoint of a, of a compassionate engagement with them to help them to leave sin behind and to honor God with their bodies. If they're each dishonoring God with their bodies in a different way. Uh, one may be in some ways worse, maybe more objectively destructive, maybe maybe more destructive for their identity, but it's not more sinful than that. And so, what I saw was that in the 2010 and beyond, uh, like in the General Social Survey, its opposition to homosexuality collapsed among young evangelicals. But it was partly because the people who already thought premarital sex was fine just decided to be consistent. You know, if one's fine, then the other one's fine, and what that tells us, too, is that uh, these areas never remain compartmentalized forever. You know, I'm a reformed guy. I'm a Calvinist. And that t- means I tend to respect assumptions. And, you know, I love that Dutch tradition. And one of them is that ultimately our ideas become consistent with each other over time. We're, we're going to reconcile them and live out the the implications of what we believe. And, and, and so that's what we, you know, that that's what we really uh, see there. And I'll just add one one quick thing to that. What I've picked up over and over again is young people are not shocked by my statistics. Older people are. Mm. And um, they simply don't question it. And I've had moms tell my wife that. I had a local Christian public school teacher who's in touch with a lot of the evangelical kids in his public school told my wife, she said, he said, I know your husband's probably getting a lot of pushback on what he said, but I want to tell you from my perspective, teaching in a public school for 25 years, he said, what he's saying is absolutely accurate. We're not shocked by it at all. My kids wouldn't be shocked by it. Um, it this is like an open secret.
1: I, I want to I say something uh, or repeat something that was in your study, and then I have a question because you brought up something I I, I absolutely want to follow up on. but. You, This just reinforces what you just said. It says, Yet in my years of teaching in the church and in so-called evangelical higher education, it is showing me that too many spiritual leaders, educators, and parents in the evangelical world do not grasp the extent of premarital sexual activity among their unmarried young people, including the types of sexual activity being engaged in and their consequences, which we did talk about, oral and anal sex. This helps to explain the appalling inadequacy of their attempts to promote and enforce a consistent traditional sexual ethic among their singles. So. Again, we we want we will give a link to the study. It's really important to be able to uh, be aware of this. I, I appreciate this. I, I am curious with... You had mentioned that in the early 2000s, there was uh, the study that was done that showed that they were okay with premarital sexual activity, not okay with uh, same-sex uh, sexual activity. Um, and I'm curious if there's anything... But then... in 2010 there was a consistency They they kind of brought the two together uh, in the sense that they now uh, uh, mirrored one another or or were consistent is there anything in the data that you're seeing now that does that same thing that you think is going to shift in 10 years
2: Well, I I think we're gonna I I think we're gonna see uh, now it gets into areas outside of sex sexual activity per se but we're already seeing a, a huge shift on the whole transgender thing. I mean a huge shift. Um, and um, the other thing we're seeing more and more is um, a um, a rejection of a lot of the basic categories that we've even taken for granted. So for example, a lot of our young evangelicals uh, no longer really think of homosexual and heterosexual. Um, So, for example, uh, right now, well over one out of 10 girls, uh, young women in evangelical churches, well over one out of 10. And that's in the National Survey of Family Growth. Uh, And I got that. uh, that, I did not put that in this report. I I wanted this to want to focus more on the heterosexual world. But well over one out of 10 of them has had sex with another woman. Um, And we're talking about kids as, as young as 17, 18, 19 years old. But what what research is telling us, and in fact, Washington Post ran an article on this called "Partway Gay," is that they don't think of themselves as homosexual. They don't even really think of themselves as bisexual. This is just something I do. Right. There's uh, no.
0: So just to clarify, there, there's no sort of quote-unquote classical sense of you know I've been feeling these urges my whole life. Now I'm indulging them.
2: Absolutely so, not. So that so that what it means is that their identity as a heterosexual is not necessarily, for example, being threatened if they even have that identity at all, or if that identity even matters to them. And I think those things are really out on the frontier uh, now. And um, I, I think another thing is that the I think pornography is is hitting our kids like a ton of bricks. Uh, I'm trying to imagine when I was 15 years old if I could have accessed it. Any kind of pornography, anytime I wanted, anonymously, 24/7, for free. Um, I think I think I would have been destroyed by it. Um, and frankly, right now, what I'm finding it is that you know I do premarital counseling and different things like that. Uh, I am dealing with almost no young men who haven't struggled with pornography at some level, and it's turning it, it that and the video games and a lot of the lack of maturity is turning off a lot of our young evangelical women to the young men. You know, they're, they're basically, um, it, it's hurting their relationship with them, it's hurting their perception of them, and it's hurting their ability to think of them as somebody that they can, that they can connect to and live their life with and depend on uh, over the years. And it's, it is a huge hurdle in premarital counseling now. Uh, I think dealing with, uh, dealing with those kinds of sexual discretions in the past of the people we're dealing with, especially the young men, is now something that we almost automatically have to do, uh, and I, I just try to let it come forward naturally. But but I'm I'm never surprised that it does, and 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 it it almost always does.
0: Boy, this is you know as you're saying this, I mean, absolutely. I just and Jason, you and I have talked about this. We see this among kids, and we see either a. Um, you know, an unwillingness to teach to these things because people don't know how to teach them or they're scared to teach them or they don't think these these realities exist or there's a wholesale accommodation to these realities that are out there and the cultural narrative is certainly taking over the biblical narrative in terms of where people land and it's it's frightening. I, You know, as you're talking, I, I want to say something about this because you mentioned pornography and I was thinking about this when you talked about you know, uh, vaginal sexual intercourse or oral sex or anal sex. I had a conversation with someone who does some counseling, and this was not, I don't know who was actually involved in this, but basically, when we were talking about these matters of sexuality very recently, he was telling me about uh, an evangelical pastor who is, his marriage is in trouble because he is demanding that his wife engage in anal sex. She's refusing. And he says, this is a deal breaker. This is a, this is a deal breaker for our marriage. I mean, what, when you hear these things, first off, you're, you're going, okay, what has nurtured us into this way of thinking where we get to this point? And then what are the things that can nurture us out of this? You know, how can we reboot and get on the right path? And Correct these horrible, uh, destructive ways of thinking that undermine our flourishing. Um, Yeah, I'm. I'm just saying that. I'm just sharing that. I don't don't know what the response can be to that, but I was dumbfounded by this.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that disturbed me the most in looking at this, and I I have four daughters, and um, the um, to me they're each they're princesses. I mean, you know, I—they're intelligent. I, they're wonderful to be around. Um, I, I can't imagine any man that wouldn't, um, who's going to marry them that wouldn't want to treasure them and and wouldn't want to honor them and, and and all that. And you know, when I when I look at what young men are demanding from these girls, you know, this what I saw in anal sex, what I saw with regards to women servicing men in other ways, and um, the ages at which this is occurring. Well, to me, and, and I can't prove this, but it's a direct line from pornography. And and that is going to decimate their marriages. It's going to go right into their marriages because um, suddenly, you know, their wife to be satisfying to them or their girlfriend to be satisfying to them has to be just like this woman on the 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 porn video and and these women who, who, who are in the porn industry are wrecked characterologically. They're, they're wrecked emotionally. Um, they, their, their lifespans are very short. They oftentimes have to heavily use drugs to get themselves to do it. Um, and yet here's a Baptist kid in Des Moines, Iowa who now wants this from his girlfriend. And um, and thinks there's something wrong with her if she's not comfortable with that. Well, that's a terrible way to. And I'm all for a great deal of freedom and and how a couple chooses to be with each other sexually within certain boundaries. But that should certainly should not be informed or guided by something as awful as 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 a mob run organized crime run multi billion dollar human sex trafficking industry that does nothing but wreck human lives. Mm.
0: That's good. Listen, we need to take a break, but I'm just to say when we come back, I want to get into practical responses. And this is where uh, two things I'd love to hear from you. You you just said your father, you said four daughters. You have four daughters. Yeah. Yeah. So you have daughters as father, daughters. What do we as as parents and people in youth ministry need to be teaching our sons? And then obviously you're engaged in teaching your daughters what do we need to be teaching our girls and you know from the perspective you're wearing multiple hats here you know you're a follower of christ you're a sociologist you're a dad you're someone who works with young people you care deeply about these things when we come back i really want to work to unpack that stick with us (music) tens of thousands of kids have been trained by their parents and youth workers to think Christianly about music and media with our How to Use Your Head to Guard Your Heart 3D Guide to Making Wise Media Choices. This easy-to-use teaching tool needs to be in your youth ministry toolbox if you desire to teach your students to integrate their faith into all of life. Jesus calls us to follow Him, and that includes following Him into the 6-9 to hours a day of screen time that shape and mold the beliefs and behaviors of our kids. To learn more about our 3D Media Evaluation Guide and to order a copy for every member of your youth group, go to our website at cpyu.org. Teach your kids to engage with media to the glory of God.
1: Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're going to do a quick flyover before we just dive into some of the practical because what we've realized is that there are some statistical points that we should uh, point to show uh, we've given a broad stroke, but can you just fly over some of the main uh, points with regards to some of the activity that you did see? Because we have said it as surprising, but if we could just get some specifics, maybe four or five statistical points that we could point to as we get into the practical.
2: Happy to yeah, I'll focus on behavior. Uh, yeah. First of all, <clears throat> About one-fourth of evangelical kids between 15 and 17 have had sexual intercourse. By the time they're 18 to 22, two-thirds of them have had sexual intercourse. Um, The, uh, about two-thirds of of the statistics are about the same for oral sex with an opposite sex partner. Um, About one out of, uh, about 7% of 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 evangelical teens between 15 and 17, about 7% have had anal sex, opposite gender, anal sex, and about one-fifth uh, between 18 and 22 have had opposite sex, anal sex. And um, the uh, among 15 and 17, if you take all sexual activity combined and you don't include what we used to call petting, um, the numbers are well over 40% of both m- boys and girls have engaged in some kind of sexual activity by the time they're 15 to 17 years old. Um, and we're up in three quarters, about three out of four have ha- engaged in some kind of sexual activity uh, by the time they're 18 to 22 th- uh, two years old. Um, literally, uh, If you take evangelical Protestants, if they become sexually active, this isn't overall, but if they become sexually active, between 15 and 17 years old, among those who became sexually active, 35% of those kids have already had at least four separate sex partners. And among those who are 18 to 22 years old, if they become sexually active at all, and so the key is to stop them from ever becoming sexually active, over half of them have had four or more sex partners. And I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to help us to wrap our mind around an 18 to 22-year-old young person who's had sex with four or more separate people.
0: Yeah, thanks Thanks for sharing those. I, You know, it's really interesting to me, I know, because we're gonna get into the practical now. We just did a little project here on a a chat bot we put out a trend alert on a chat bot that Planned Parenthood put up earlier this year called Roo which exists to answer self-described as answering all the questions kids have about sexuality uh, sex gender so forth and so on a kid can ask anything anonymously and in a world where there is a real void of positive biblical sex education that really understands personhood and the glory of god's good gift of sex and sexuality in that void has stepped the cultural narrative and this is just one example of an outlet an educator we would say and if folks want to learn about that uh, go to our website you can you can find that trend alert but now let's talk let's shift you know in the in the last few minutes we have together to how we address this, and I asked you before, what do we need to be teaching the boys that are in the world of your daughters, and what do we need to be teaching our daughters who are in the world of your home there? You know, how can we, as parents and youth workers really push back on this and 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 recover uh, a biblical narrative for God's good gift to sex and sexuality?
2: Well, if I could say real quickly for both boys and girls, we need to get them to church regularly and we need to help them to understand that their faith is something that that's to be lived every hour of every day, seven days a week. In other words, a real involvement in the religious life of the church because that's where the blood flows. We can have the best teaching, the best ministry in the world, but if they're not there, they don't get the blood. And so we need to make sure that they're organically connected. We need to look beyond ourselves as parents and, and look at the larger community and how God has put them there to, to help us and to support us in our work. Uh, and, and, and frankly, many times our kids might be more comfortable going to them first than us. As long as they're going to somebody who's going to teach them biblical truth and listen to them and really help them to, 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 to follow Christ, um, I don't want to be too hung up. I mean, I'm hoping eventually I can have that conversation with my kid but I want them to be having them with, with someone.
0: Yeah, David, um, David, in response to that, real quickly, is it fair to say, I think that you would go down this road, that when you talk about getting them to church and being involved in church, you're looking at the full intergenerational you know, breadth, width, depth of the body of Christ, as opposed to just bringing them to church and having them with their peers for just all age-segregated activities?
2: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, um, you know, the, look, um, I, I learned a lot of things about my grandfather when I was older that just shocked me and I had no idea what he'd lived through. I had no idea that his younger sister got pregnant out of wedlock and committed suicide. I had no idea um, about some of the things that he dealt with. I had no idea until I was well into my adult years that my mother had to deal with an alcoholic and philandering dad um, and yet, you know, the the fact is is that um, the collective wisdom of the generations of the body of Christ, all the diversity that we bring to bear there, is 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 all part of God's provision for our young people. It's not just about us. It's not and it's not just about youth ministers and peer groups, although that's that's a vital and extremely important part of what we're doing. It's it's a whole orb kind of thing, and we should never second guess who our kids are going to really connect with we might be surprised uh, who they really connect with and what they get through those connections.
0: Sorry to interrupt you. Go carry on with uh, some of your recommendations.
2: Well, you know, on, on on girls, first of all, I think it's really vital, and I know this has oftentimes been said, but it to me it can never become said too much, is that as much as possible they should have a very constructive relationship with their dad who should adore them uh, and should respect them and should care about what they think, and should, should teach them to bear themselves with respect. And every day, those girls should be watching me or all of us treat how we treat their mother. Um, and, and by the way, even in damaged or divorced situations, I've seen that even in some of the worst situations, men can step up and become a vital part of their kids' lives and still continue to show that respect. So if, I would even say, look, if you're divorced from your wife and, and she's got custody of the kids, and you maybe don't even like each other anymore, they should see nothing but respect uh, by the way that you treat their mother. Because the fact is, is that that speaks volumes to them about how they should expect to be treated by other people and that they're carrying in their own bodies a healthy self-regard. We, by the way, we shouldn't be praising them constantly for how they look, but we should be okay with praising how they look. But they shouldn't be hung up on the idea that if they're a little homely, it means that they're not valuable, that they're not that they're not a treasure, that they're not they're not somebody with a great life ahead of them, not only in their careers but in their calling as wives and moms. You know, their emphasis should not be on the wrong things, and. Um, In that sense, I I think that that's that's just really vital. And and again, I think for for our young men, I think we've fallen off the wrong side of the log in terms of a positive masculinity that has, at its core, the respect and protection and care of women, but not in a way that ever diminishes the regard that you have for them. Um, But but that in a sense of, look, I would hope to think that my that my teenage sons would would be would be a force to contend with if they saw their younger sister being bullied, belittled or put down by boys at school. I, I would hope that they would step up to the plate. Uh, maybe not like it was in my baby boom generation, where you know you took it back, but but it certainly should be dealt with. It should be it should be it should be addressed um, because in that sense they're learning what it means to be. Uh, a whole Christian man uh, towards um, towards the women in their lives it, it, it uh, masculinity does not have to become misogyny it, it but it can be a positive regard for um, uh, the, the women in your life and 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 again um, I, I would say too that the 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 boys are going to learn how to teach how to treat women by the way that i treat or we treat our our wives in their presence, and the other women in our lives, our co-workers, uh, their grandparents, their grandmothers, and everything else, and, and how we basically take care of them. I would love to see a world come back. You know, it's kind of funny. You ever notice what a, what a phenomena, things like Pride and Prejudice and Downton Abbey are? Think of course our cultures, right? And I think it's because people are craving that. We don't want the hypocr- hypocrisy side. Of it. Uh, maybe even don't want the elitist side of it. But the side of it where a woman walks in the room and all the men stand up. <laughs> um, Uh-oh. Oh. That that's that, that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, the uh, a society in which in which men don't just utter profanities in front of women, you know, uh, they shouldn't be uttering profanities at all, they're gonna be wrong. But but there should be a special regard there. And and some of those old manners and civilities are not. Uh, we're not about putting women down or keeping them in their place. They were about basically an elevated civility in our social life and our interaction with each other that speaks positively about the positive aspects of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Mm-hmm.
0: I, you know, as we finish up here, and I really appreciate this conversation so much, but would you point us to any resources that you think would be helpful? For youth workers and for parents, you know, obviously we'll put a link to your book. We'll put a link to the study there. Anything else you would recommend that would be helpful as we navigate these
2: issues? Well, i be, I'm currently in the process of writing a book just on this topic alone, but that won't be out for probably a year and a half. Um, I love Harvest USA materials. Um, I just love what they do. I love the Passport to Purity materials. Um, and we walked our kids through all those. Um anything that you can get that's going to help. I, I, one thing I've been shocked by is how many evangelical young people have never had any honest dialogue with sex uh, about with their pastors or with uh, even their parents. and any any resources that help you to really tackle that in a in a rot gut honest way, but but in a way that really keeps God and his world and the beauty of it all in the center of it. Uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be extremely helpful. Yeah,
0: that's that's good. I, you know, I, I'm just going to say this: when you say you know how you're surprised about the number of pastors who haven't had these conversations, it's youth pastors as well. And I was at a church, I won't say where it was, a couple of years ago. They had me come in on a Saturday and speak to parents and adults about something other than sexuality. I think we're talking about kids and technology. And they asked me to stay over on Sunday to speak to the students about pornography in the morning, middle school and high school, and I said to the two youth workers, two full-time youth workers, one middle school, one high school, you know, what have you taught them so far? And they both said, well, we've both been here seven years, and we have never broached the subject. They've never talked about it. And I'm thinking, well, this contributes. You know, I don't know if we're scared to talk about it or we don't know what to talk about it, but we have to get over our fear. We have to talk about it, have to equip ourselves to because the culture is certainly, I mean, our kids have their smartphones. Culture's talking about this 24 7, speaking into their lives. And so we need to teach the truth. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, we're going to, I want to remind people, we are going to put links to all the resources up. We'll link you to everything from Grove City College to the study to books to our sexual integrity initiative. You can learn more about what David Ayers is doing and we'll track with him in the future. We hope to have him back. I, I can't wait till this next book comes out. What is the title? Do you have a working title or? Working title
2: is Sex and the Single Evangelical. Okay,
0: that, and that sounds awesome because that's an issue we need to certainly address and prepare our kids for as well. We, we've, we've, I think, many times uh, denigrated those who are, are single or somehow seen them as second-class citizens, and so we'll look forward to that. Uh, but go to our homepage, cpyu.org, Click on the player for this particular podcast, and you will find listed below. Chris Wagner's going to put it there, put them there, all of the links uh, to everything that's mentioned here. And we'll remind you as well, talk to your friends, share the podcast with your friends, and invite them to subscribe. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you you can subscribe to Youth Culture Matters. So until we're together again, uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters.
1: Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.